Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. It's tough to be poor in America, no matter who you are. But here's a question. Why do we tolerate poverty for children more than we do for the elderly? Think about all the social programs aimed at lifting seniors out of poverty and then try in vain to find equivalents for children. That's what we'll discuss today. The gap between our empathy and our policies between anti-poverty efforts for the old and for the young. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm really glad you've tuned in. This is a country that has profound struggles keeping people out of poverty. Millions of Americans don't earn enough to truly take care of themselves or their families. And, of course, the layers of inequality that exist in other facets of American life play havoc with economic security as well. But within the problem of American poverty is a distinction that often goes without much notice. We spend billions each year trying to mitigate troubles for impoverished Americans. But we don't spend it in a balanced way when it comes to age. We have grand sweeping programs to address the threat of poverty for the old. Think of Social Security, think of Medicare, and all of the other supports that make up the safety net for older Americans. But what about the millions and millions of American children who also live in poverty. We don't have anything like those manifest efforts to help them. What would be the childhood equivalent of something like Social Security, for instance? And that gap really matters. Nearly one in seven children in this country lives in poverty. And thanks to our increasingly calcified economic system, growing up poor, of course, increases the chances that you'll be a poor adult. So why do we leave so many poor children and their families to fend for themselves? Why are we more empathetic toward and focused on helping seniors who would be at risk of being poor if not? for the massive government programs that we've designed to help them out. Bryce Covert is an independent journalist who has been writing about the economy, and her recent piece in the New York Times is titled, We Pay to Keep the Old Out of Poverty. Why Don't We Do the Same for the Young? Bryce Covert, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me on. So before we get to the numbers, why do you think we have child poverty to the extent that we do in this country? I mean, even the phrase child poverty doesn't make sense because, you know, children are not allowed to be uh, out working. They are not expected uh, to take care of themselves. Why, why do we allow children to live uh, without the, the, the means that they need uh, to be taken care of. You're right. Children are not out earning income, or at least we don't want them to be. Uh, children are poor when their families are poor. And it is true that having a child is often a catalyst into poverty for a lot of parents. It's expensive. Um, you're trying to take care of another human being, often at a time when just the fact of having a child disrupts your or makes it very hard to go out and work because um, you have to care for that child. Uh, and this is not necessarily a unique phenomenon in our country. Um, there is child poverty all across the world, and um, when you look at 
poverty rates in our developed peer countries, child poverty looks about the same before you take into account what the government does to alleviate it. So if you just look at what families earn and the poverty rates that they wind up in based on that, which then trickles down to their children, we actually look pretty comparable to other places. But when you look at the poverty rates that remain once you take into account government taxes and spending, um, we are a very extreme outlier. We have very high rates of poverty, child poverty in particular in this country, basically because we do less to help families get through a very difficult and impoverishing time in their lives. Hmm. Uh, so let's talk about what the state of child poverty looks like in our country um, and whether it's getting worse or better in recent years. As I said in the open, we have a country with about one in seven children living in poverty. That's a pretty stunning, stunning number. It is stunning. Um, you can also put that by saying in 2019, about 10 and a half million children were poor in this country. And um, it does not fall evenly um, by demographics. Um, almost three quarters of poor children are black or Hispanic or Native, Native American children of color. Um, but it is relatively widespread throughout the country. And given the high levels, it impacts a lot of different regions and a lot of different families. And it has slowly, gradually gotten better. Um, poverty in general, I think, both here in the United States and also across the world, we have been slowly, steadily marching toward reducing poverty levels. Um, for child poverty in the U.S. in particular, the times when it has gotten better are the times when the government has done more about it. In particular, for example, in the 1990s, um, there was a strong labor market, which helped boost wages for parents, but also the federal government nearly doubled the earned income tax credit that goes to working parents. Mm -hmm. And we saw a big decrease in child poverty at that time. Uh, we also, of course, have the short-lived experience of the expanded child tax credit payments uh, of last year that came from the American Rescue Package, and we saw child poverty drop dramatically when those were still going out. So we make the most progress against child poverty when the government um, dedicates benefits to reducing it. Mm. And you were saying earlier that the things that we do to alleviate child poverty don't really compare favorably to the things that you might find in other Western developed countries. Let's talk about what those differences are. If we went to uh, Europe, for instance, and, and looked at what the countries there are doing to alleviate child poverty, what would we, what would we find that we don't find in our own country? Well, there's a number of things. Um, you know, a lot of other countries have universal health insurance, which we do not have, although we do have some programs specifically for children. Um, a lot of other countries, developed countries, spend significantly on early child care and early education in a way that we don't. Um, but when I spoke to experts about child poverty, they said really the single thing that stands out most is the fact that we don't have any kind of a child allowance or a child benefit that's just cash going to parents. Twenty-three other countries, most of them other developed countries, have some kind of universal or family child allowance. We don't have that here. We did, again, very briefly last year. We had a version of it when the expanded CTC payments went out. But other than that, we really haven't done that yet. And that all the experts said, is really the key difference in why other countries have lower child poverty rates and ours remains high. And then let's talk about the flip side, the, the, the massive programs that exist to lift seniors out of poverty uh, are such a stark contrast to what we've just been talking about, which is uh, the, the, the relative... Uh, paucity, I guess, of, of those programs for, for, for children. Talk about why that's so. How did we get to this place where seniors who have no question uh, deserve and need the support of programs like Social Security and Medicare have those programs, but we don't have anything that would be the equivalent of them for kids? 
Yes. Well, Social Security is really the key here uh, when it comes to poverty amongst the elderly. Um, Social Security is the single biggest anti-poverty program we have in this country. It kept uh, 26.5 million people out of poverty in 2020. Most of them are seniors, not all of them, but many of them seniors. If you look at the next biggest program, which is unemployment insurance, it lifted 5.5 million people above poverty. So it's, it's a huge part of how we reduce our poverty levels in this country, but it is focused mostly on the elderly. And that really came of, in the Depression, a sense of urgency and crisis around very severe poverty among the elderly, particularly those who were no longer able to work. And there was political will and action to do something about it. And as uh, I'm sure listeners will know very well, it has now become really entrenched in our society such that people feel a strong attachment to it. It um, ranks very favorably. Everyone sort of now has come to expect that when you are older, you can expect a regular cash payment from the government to keep you out of poverty. Um, We just don't do the same thing for children yet. We you know, we have this regular cash payment going out to the elderly that is very effective at keeping them out of real hard destitution. Um, we haven't developed the same thing for when people are very young. So I, I want to talk about this a little from a cultural standpoint. If I sit and think about it, I, I would say that I expect most Americans to feel more empathy for children than they do for seniors. And it's not that I think that they would not be empathetic toward, toward seniors, but that there's, there's something about children and their relative innocence that I think appeals strongly to our sensibilities as Americans, the idea of opportunity and making sure people have it uh, at that stage of life. So, so what what explains, from a cultural standpoint, I guess, uh, why children have not been able to uh, to get the, th- the the kind of things that we've done for seniors? What, what what's going on there? I think there's a lot of things going on. Um, you know, one is the politics, the the electoral politics at play. Many people will point out that children don't vote, which is true, right. and that. The seniors in our country vote in high numbers and uh, tend to be pretty politically active and organized. Um, It's also hard for parents of young children to get politically organized and and activated. It is a time when you have very little extra time um, in which to do that. So it's challenging on that level. I will say, though, that other countries have that problem as well. Um, That's obviously not a unique facet of American life. I think what sets us apart culturally from other countries is race, that benefits for the poor in this country get really tied up in racial Mm. feelings in a way that they don't as much in other countries. There was a seminal 2001 paper from three economists who looked at this question broadly. Why don't we have a social welfare state that you find in other developed countries? And they found it's not really that our economy is different. It's that we have what they called racial fragmentation. And so I think when it comes to something like a benefit for children, I agree with you that in theory, you would think we would think children are sort of innocent and they're not working and they're not making these choices to live in poverty or to rise out of poverty. They're kids. Um, But it still gets tied to their parents and whether their parents are deserving and who is and isn't deserving. And for us in the U.S., that gets tied up in who is like us and who isn't. There's this feeling that poor people are people who are making bad choices, that it's about their individual role and that they're not like us, whereas in other European countries it tends to be more of a collective responsibility that poor people are just having bad luck or it's not their fault that something has happened and that we have a responsibility to do it. Um, So that is a really big cultural difference that makes it very challenging for all kinds of benefits here, but I think stands in the way of a child allowance in particular. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Bryce Covert, an independent journalist who writes about the economy. She's got a recent piece in the New York Times titled, We Pay to Keep the Old Out of Poverty. Why won't we do the same for the young? That's what we're talking about today, this gap in support from the government uh, for uh, older Americans uh, who we do a lot to keep from living in poverty. 
uh, and younger Americans who don't have nearly the same kinds of social safety net. The question is why, uh, how we got to the space where nearly one in seven American children lives in poverty without big programs like Social Security, which benefit uh, seniors to, to help them out, uh, but also how we get to a different space uh, where uh, young people who, who need opportunity and need a fresh start and the, the chance to, to be all that they can be uh, are getting the kind of support to stay out of poverty uh, that they need. Uh, we, we would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, give us a call and tell us why you think we have such high child poverty in this country, what causes it, uh, and why don't we do more about it. Uh, also, we'd love to hear from you if you are a parent who has children. Talk to us about the cost of raising kids in this country, how expensive uh, it can be, and how difficult it can be to do it uh, without uh, without living in poverty. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. So uh, before we get to our listeners, uh, Bryce, I, I, I do want to talk just a little about um, about how we get to a different space here. Uh, you you talked quite uh, quite convincing quite convincingly uh, about the fact that race is uh, at the center of this of this problem, as it is at the center of so many other problems that we have. That left me thinking that there isn't uh, there isn't a whole lot of chance uh, to, to to do this differently. That uh, you know that's such an entrenched issue, and people's views on that are so uh, so much a part of their DNA. So I, I wonder what you make of the the opportunities to to try to do this in a different way. Well, the thing that. Uh, a child allowance or some kind of child benefit has going for it is we have a very strong body of evidence showing that it works and has huge, huge benefits for children, for their families, and ultimately for the rest of us down the line when these children have more to eat, they develop better, they can pay attention in school, and then they go on to be adults who earn more and are more likely to be employed and are more likely to get more education. Um, That has now been studied extensively, and so it's not just sort of a a theory that it might do some good. We now have some really good evidence. Um, And as as I mentioned a couple times, we had the CTC payments last year for about half the year. Parents were given an extra amount of money each month, um, depending on the age of their children. And the impact it had was very swift and quite frankly very stark. It dramatically reduced poverty among children very quickly. And on the flip side, since it's gone away, it lapsed at the end of the year. So in January, we stopped sending those payments to parents. Uh, Child poverty ticked right back up. Um, So I think that tells us that we have the power to do this if we want to. Um, Of course, it's disappointing from my perspective that it lapsed and has not been brought back. Um, I think that if we if lawmakers were to rally the political will to implement something like this on a longer-term basis, I do think it has the power to become something like Social Security. Um, The challenge with the child tax credit payments last year was that it was temporary. It didn't have a lot of time for people to understand what it was doing, where it was coming from, why it was happening, how it was benefiting people, and then it went away. If this were something that was around for a while, I think it would start to become part of our DNA. People would start to accept it as a, as a good that we all owe each other, as a benefit that they deserve and should rely on, similar to Social Security. But that takes some time, and, and unfortunately, we didn't really give it much time. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation about poverty in America, the difference between uh, child poverty and the things that we do to keep older people out of poverty. We will get to you on the phones next. Uh, Frank and Livonia, Perry in Detroit, you're up first. 
If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, to Facebook and Twitter. Put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest right now is Bryce Covert, an independent journalist who writes about the economy. She's got a recent piece in the New York Times titled, We Pay to Keep the Old Out of Poverty. Why don't we do the same for the young? That is what we're talking about, the difference between the way we deal with poverty for those who are seniors in our country and the things we don't do for children who live in poverty. One in seven children in America lives in poverty, and we don't have anything quite the equivalent of something like Social Security or Medicare for them. The question is why, uh, also, whether we can think of it differently and uh, maybe push things in a different direction. We want to hear from you on the phones. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, you can also go to social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter, and put comments there. I want to read a couple of uh, social media comments before we get to the phones. Uh, David on Twitter says, as a foster parent, I've learned that poverty is the number one reason that kids enter foster care. Once kids enter foster care, it makes it even harder to get them back because of the bedroom requirements. Uh, the monthly child tax credit check was a huge benefit and it should be made standard. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, simply put, there are too many people who just don't want to help others. They got theirs, and they don't care about other people. Uh, Megan says, there is this notion that if kids are poor, it'll motivate their parents to, quote, work harder to provide for them. Also, Social Security is available only to people who paid in and earned credits unless you qualify for SSDI. But then you have to stay poor uh, to keep it. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Um, uh, Frank in Livonia. Frank, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Stephen. Hey. Um, yeah, I would. Um, I I am um, collecting Social Security and uh, Medicare, but I've every week um, I've paid into that since 1972. Mm -hmm. So I think that comparing, um, you know, a payout from for children. Uh, to what we've paid in is, is a, like your producer said, a false equivalency. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I look at the things that like the, uh, you know, like the University of Michigan, the endowment fund they have there. I mean, it's just in billions of dollars mm -hmm. that we have in higher education. But, you know, I guess as being kind of like an economic conservative, you know, where are the, you know, you, you've got to think like, where are the, uh, you know, the employees coming from? Where are the consumers coming from? And I think that, you know, businesses and, you know, higher education and stuff really need to take a look at this. And, you know, I don't think it's, it's like a, a large amount of money to make sure that these children are fed and they have a, you know, really top notch schools to go to. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to need these students coming in and look at the money we spend on the other end. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to uh, offend anybody with master's and Ph.D. programs and stuff that are, you know, uh, but, you know, down at, the, you know, to get them there uh, is something that we really need to uh, look at. So, so Frank, uh, so he, Frank, I guess uh, and, and I think you're you're. Uh, your take on Social Security and and how different that is 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 important. I think, though, uh, what we're talking about is the idea of a program that provides money um, one way or another uh, to make sure that kids uh, don't don't live in poverty. Obviously, kids couldn't pay into that system uh, to in order to get the money out. But the idea would be to to, to create something that. You know that 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 did the same thing. I I, I do really like what you're saying about uh, business. I think and 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 other people who should be who should be looking at that. But but Bryce Covert, talk about the difference, I guess, between something like Social Security and um, some of the other ideas that that people have put out there about how to deal with uh, with child poverty. I've heard, for instance, about this idea of you know giving 
families a certain amount of money when children are born uh, as an investment so that uh, you know it pays off at some point. There, there are lots of different ways, I guess, to, to, to get at this. There are, yes. Um, the caller has a good point that, the, that Social Security is designed um, and also messaged in a very particular way that has made it um, very strong, at, both politically and on a policy level, which is that, um, you know, FDR sort of famously wanted to levy taxes on everyone to pay into it so that they the program would be politically infallible, and it seems like he was right. Um, but, of course, the country made a decision to have a Social Security trust fund that people paid into and then pay that money out to seniors to keep them out of poverty. Um, like you said, children can't pay in, so we'd probably have to design it differently. I think it's important to keep in mind, though, that while children can't necessarily pay in because they don't have earnings, uh, the benefits will far outweigh the cost of a child allowance. Um, recent economic research puts it on the factor of like one to seven. Um, the benefits are long-term, though. It can be hard to look at a ledger and say, okay, we're p- putting this money in now when a child is four, and we have to wait until they're 60 to see all the benefits accrue. But they really, they really truly do. You know, giving families more money when children are young leads to fewer infant deaths, better child health, less interaction with the criminal justice system, higher graduation rates from high school and college. As the the caller was saying, that means that they then go on to be more productive adults who are more likely to work, to earn higher income. All of that reaps so many financial benefits, not to to mention social benefits for this country. Um, I liked what he was saying about you know, this is something that businesses should be interested in. You know, this is the workforce of our country. These are our children who will grow up to be the adults who are working and part of the society. Uh, we should think about whether it's worth investing in them. Again, uh, Frank, really appreciate the call and uh, the insights there. Let's go next to Peter in Detroit. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. Uh the, the, the premise that you're going with is that somehow America cares about children. America does not care about children. Let's be real about that. If we cared about children, we care about our own children. And if we cared about children, we wouldn't manufacture and and because uh, those kill mostly children. They don't kill them. We wouldn't allow the sale and manufacture of, of war on our streets because those are killing children. We, uh, we would we wouldn't underfund schools and argue for funding of our own school where, where my children go, but where other kids' children go to help with them. That's the problem, yeah. is that we don't care about children in this country. We claim we do, but we don't. Yeah. Uh, Peter, uh, great to hear from you and, and uh, great points about the way we think about children in this country. Bryce, this gets to the point that you were making earlier, I think, about how we – Kind of otherize uh, uh, children and and child poverty in this in this country, and and that connects uh, connects to, to to race and racism. Absolutely, um, I really take the caller's point. I think this country says it cares about children. We talk a lot about family values. We talk about parenthood and specifically motherhood being a high calling. Uh, but when you look at what we actually do to support it, we do very little, um, and. I take his point, too, that, you know, we're not controlling guns. We're not investing as much as we could be in schools. We spend basically next to nothing on children when they're the youngest in terms of their education and care. So, you know, our money really is not where our mouth is. And I think it does get back to the challenge we have culturally where um, I think the caller put it as, you know, I got mine to hell with you. Um, But I think that that sort of gets at this idea that we see it as being an individual problem. And, and, and it relies on individual shortcomings and failings rather than we are all responsible for each other and each other's children. It's just a very different way of looking at poverty, and it leads to very different solutions. Yeah. Uh, I also want to talk a little about the pay gap between men and women and how it likely connects uh, to this to this issue, uh, Bryce, you've written quite a bit about uh, the difference in pay between uh, 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 men and women. Uh, talk about how that plays into child poverty. 
It does. Um, we, in this country, we actually managed to have both high employment levels and high poverty rates at the same time, which is unlike many other countries. And this is particularly true for working mothers. Um, women are more likely to live in poverty. They earn less than men on average, even when they're working full-time year-round. And it just means that it's harder to rise out of poverty if you're earning le- fewer wages. Um, some of that, too, has to do with what they call the motherhood penalty. Um, I mentioned earlier that having a child is frequently a catalyst into poverty in this country, and that's particularly true for mothers who see a hit to their earnings when they have children, as compared to both fathers and also childless women. Um, There's an idea that mothers are less devoted to their jobs, Perhaps they shouldn't even be working. They should just be home with their children. And it makes it really hard to keep earning the way that they did before they had children, right at the same time as they have extra expenses to care for their children. So it is definitely part of it. And there are policies that could help. I think paid family leave for both men and women would go a really long way Mm -hmm. toward not only giving families time to be with their children, to bond with them and care for them, um, but also if we encourage men to take it, we start to see caregiving as something that everyone does, not just mothers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, Peter, appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go next to Perry in Detroit. Perry, what's on your mind? Yes, thanks, Stephen, for for, uh, taking my call. And the, uh, the, the young lady, the speaker, is right on point, and she basically said, uh, everything that I wanted to say. Uh, first of all, it's just two words, uh, uh, race and lack of will. I mean, we have to even reframe the way that we talk about it. Instead of talking about it in terms of spending money on children, how about look at it in terms of investments? We know for a fact, this is not a maybe, but we know for a fact that for every dollar that we spend on our children, that's seven dollars that we save down the line in our crimes and jail hmm. stuff like that and also for whatever reason um anytime they talk about ch- children in poverty is always the face of a black or a brown child not that rural white child or that uh, white child from appalachia and again it's just a lack of political will. And it's so sad in a country that is so wealthy as this, that we have children in poverty. I mean, what if we spent uh, just some of our money in education? Um, If we don't want to give direct payments, how about uh, putting that money into uh, childhood education? Mm -hmm. How about putting it in increased payments for uh, the medical upkeep for our children? Again, it's not that we don't have the resources. What we lack is we lack the will and we lack the patriotism. These black, these brown children, these rural children, these are Americans. These are Americans. And this is an investment in our future. If we take care of our children today, we will be investing in productive citizens to take care of us tomorrow yes and and thank you for taking my call perry i I love the speaker she's right on point (laughs) yeah perry i i really appreciate the the call and and your really great your really great thoughts uh there Uh, bryce i want to go back to something specific perry talked about that for every dollar you spend you know investing in a a child that uh you save seven dollars on the other end and in you know, negative costs essentially uh, to, tr- to try to make up for that lack of investment. That's a really powerful idea, and it's one that I don't think gets emphasized quite enough. That that you're going to pay one way or another. Uh, it's cheaper to do it on the front end than it is uh, on the back end, and and instead we're all loaded up on on the back end of that thing, and 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 not at all it seems uh, up front. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Perry. The the feeling is mutual. What you said was great. Um, I agree. I mean, Perry made the point. We have the resources. 
Um, this is a very wealthy country. Uh, it's just where we decide to put those resources. And right now we are spending a lot on the back end. We spend a lot on the criminal justice system. Um, we could instead try to get in and invest before that and develop children who have more food to eat, who are able to pay attention in school, who are able to learn and to graduate and to find a job. The, con- the benefits are very concrete, and as I said before, the body of evidence is very strong that this investment more than pays for itself. The challenge is that it's long-term. You know, it's not something where you put up a bill in Congress and you can say, we're going to spend this money here and we're going to get the savings two years later. You know, this comes decades down the line. It's not to say it's not real, um, but it's not realized in the same Congress. So uh, it's politically, I think, a challenge. Um, it's not economically a challenge. Yeah. Uh, again, Perry, really appreciate the call and the thoughts. Uh, Bryce, before we go to the next caller, I want to talk just uh, uh, a little about um, the idea of child health care in this country and whether if you teased child health care out of the broader argument about universal coverage, whether it might be more appealing. In other words, if you devised a program that would just provide Healthcare to all children, uh, the way that uh, that that you might have universal healthcare for everybody, uh, or that they do in other countries. I, I wonder if that would be something that could gain enough support um, because uh, because of people's ideas about you know children, and especially when it comes to something like healthcare, which is not really uh, you know a debatable benefit. Everybody absolutely needs it. I would love to be optimistic in my answer, um, <laughs> but I don't know that I'm going to be able to. We do have the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, CHIP. for low-income kids. That yeah. was created in the 90s. Um, and we have also expanded coverage for all Americans, including children, under the Affordable Care Act. But you look at, for example, the politics of Medicaid expansion, which became optional after the Supreme Court ruling over the Affordable Care Act, um, a number of Southern and red states have refused to expand Medicaid, even though the benefits they would reap would outweigh the costs. And we also know that there are a lot of kids on Medicaid. A lot of poor parents enroll in Medicaid and get their kids covered that way. Um, And that does not seem to have persuaded them still. There are still a number of holdout states that haven't done it. Um, I think the same politics come to play here. And also, it's, it's a little beyond my beat, but I know the politics of healthcare in this country are very complicated in a way that they tend to not be in other countries that don't have the same sort of private market and lobby interests on that side. Um, I think it should be a no-brainer that we want to keep kids healthy, um, but that's just not the way it plays out politically. Yeah. Okay, uh, Bryce Covert, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation about child poverty. We're going to talk specifically about what child poverty looks like in Michigan. Patrick Cooney, Assistant Director of Policy Impact at Poverty Solutions at the University of Michigan, will join us. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you think about our state and our city and child poverty, things don't look really great. Child poverty in Michigan is at about 17% of our state's children. That's almost one in five. And child poverty in Detroit is estimated around 40%, almost half the population. Obviously, 
those numbers are way too high. And in any other developed country, they just would not be acceptable. They would be not absolutely intolerable. So to talk about how we got here in the state of Michigan and in the city of Detroit, we've got Patrick Cooney. He is the Assistant Director of Policy Impact at Poverty Solutions, which is a research organization with the University of Michigan. Patrick, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's talk about where we are with child poverty in the state. Those numbers are really alarming. Uh, What are the biggest influences causing child poverty here? Yeah, so as you say, um, you know, the poverty rate in Michigan is uh, higher than the the country overall, the child poverty rate and the overall poverty rate. And if folks want to take a look, you can go to at poverty.umich.edu. You can see we have an interactive map on our website, the poverty system website, where you can see poverty data by county, and you can see kind of how it varies by by county and, and across the state. In terms of kind of you know how we got here um you know the uh the the story of you know child poverty in michigan mirrors the story of child poverty across the country and and bryce um kind of had had all that um kind of quite right you know if you look at child poverty over time it largely tracks with the health of the economy um and so only with the only difference being that with child poverty the swings are greater you know during economic recessions, um, uh, households of children are hardest hit. And so um, child poverty increases pretty dramatically. And so, um, you know, the, on the one hand, it's, it's really this economic story, right, of, of when, when economic times are bad, child poverty increases. But the, I think the, the key is, um, is looking at what are the policies on the books to, to deal with that. And as Bryce mentioned, um, you know, you look at other Western wealthy nations and um, their market outcomes aren't too much different than in the United States, uh, but they have policies that simply kind of don't allow for the levels of child poverty that we have, um, that we have here in the United States, you know, and that we have, that we have here in Michigan. So that's broadly, um, I, think, I think, the story of, of kind of where we are today. So we are having a debate in Lansing right now about the earned income tax credit, the state earned income tax credit, which uh, has gone back and forth uh, for a while. But what would this do for families and what would expanding it do for poverty in Michigan? Yeah, right. So, you know, the, you know, the, the federal earned income tax credit is one of the most effective anti-poverty programs that we have on the books, pulling millions of adults and children above the poverty line every year. Um, and as, as Bryce mentioned, there was this you know, huge expansion uh, in the late 90s um, that really made this a, a core anti-poverty program. And so then a lot of states will layer on you know, a state earned income tax credit, which is generally structured as a percentage of the federal credit. And as Right. As you say, we used to have it set at 20% of the federal credit, and then it got back down to 6% um, during the Snyder administration. And there's current proposals, right? Governor Whitmer wants to expand it back to 20%. There's even more ambitious proposals. Wayne Schmidt, a Republican senator from Traverse City, wants to expand it up to 30% of the federal credit. And this would make a, this would make a, a really big difference. So if you take a... Um, uh, a, a single parent uh, with two children making roughly twenty thousand dollars a year. Um, this would mean, if, if you know, under either proposal, it would basically move from you know currently she would get let's say three hundred and fifty dollars uh, or so from a six percent uh, state credit. Um, but if it moves to, to twenty or thirty percent, we're talking over a thousand dollars in the uh, in the state EITC, and that gets added on to the federal EITC which is, you know, for this uh, case parent would be close to $6,000, right around $6,000. So that's, that's enormous kind of an enormous anti-poverty effect and something that the state, you know, can do. And there seems to be some bipartisan support for it. Mm-hmm. What about what we were discussing earlier on the show, this difference, the distinction between the efforts that we are willing to make to try to keep seniors out of poverty and the things that we have not been able to get ourselves to do to keep children uh, out of poverty. I, I, I asked our previous guest about 
the cultural dynamic that that seems to me to be at odds uh, with the reality, which is that uh, I, I think people uh, tend to be more empathetic toward children than they are right. toward seniors. Uh, and yet the, when we look at the programs, uh, it's kind of upside down. Yeah. So, you know, what's actually interesting is that, um, you know, during the, uh, you know, the, throughout the, the 90s into the 2000s, the, our, our safety net in, in many ways was expanded in favor of children. I'm thinking about, you know, the EITC is one example, uh, expanded SNAP benefits, with which, you know, in, in large part, um, uh, you know, are, are focused on, on families with children, uh, the expansion of, of health insurance through CHIP, things like this. Um, however, as, as the major difference between that and Social Security is that it's not cash, right? It's in-kind benefits that should be used for, for food or for health or, or whatever. And, and I think that's, um, that's a, a major difference and a major missing piece. And, and Bryce mentioned this, that when you look at poverty, child poverty rates in other Western wealthy nations, um, and you see them much lower than the United States, they all have something like a universal child allowance on the books. Hmm. Um, and, and so it's, a, it's kind of this, this, um, this, this critical thing where, you know, it, it's kind of no great mystery in many ways. We see, um, you know, um, after Social Security was expanded, you see um, poverty for the elderly population, you know, decline considerably. And as Bryce was saying, when we had this brief experience last year with the expanded child tax credit, um, you see the same thing with children. You see child poverty um, drop, drop considerably. I will say the one thing I'm kind of hopeful for, and that we, I think we learned a little bit in the, in the experience, not just with the child tax credit, but throughout the sort of pandemic safety net that we erected over the past couple of years, and we learned this from Social Security as well, is the popularity of universal benefits, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the stimulus checks, for example, were wildly popular um, because everyone got them. Um, nearly everyone got them. Uh, expanded child tax credit similarly was, was quite popular. I, I don't think the, the backlash or the reason that we didn't, we didn't do it didn't come from, from people not, not liking it. It was quite popular. It was a political base there um, because it was something that was universal, which is different than a lot of how we structure our safety net, where it's targeted only to those kind of poorest families, which ends up kind of potentially breeding resentment from those families that are just not poor enough to, to receive um, to receive those benefits. So I think that's one place that, you know, we've been doing a lot of writing about this at Poverty Solutions that I think we're a little bit hopeful for is that maybe we learned something, you know, obviously not in the, in the, in the here and now, but hopefully down, down the line where um, uh, we, we can move towards a safety net that is far more universal and that is focused on uh, kind of cash-based resources that, that allow families the flexibility that they need to place money where they need to place it rather than simply um, kind of uh, uh, in-kind benefits. Yeah, yeah. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. Wonderful conversation. Thank you. Before the Second World War, the face of poverty was often white. One need only look at the photographs taken during the Depression by the Federal Photographers Mm -hmm, Program. mm -hmm. Since World War II, the face of poverty in this country is more often than not black or brown. Uh, Also, I want to query your guest. Many of our peer countries before the 20th century had the same attitudes toward the poor, at least the aristocracy and the gentry had the same attitudes about the poor as we did. The the poor deserved their plight or it was their own fault and so forth. In the 20th century, in our peer countries, that attitude did a 180-degree flip. And so we have these strong social welfare programs. Um, Will your guest, if he has time, go into analyzing why yeah, what changed? this flip did not occur in the United yeah, States. Yeah, great question, Ed. Um, uh, Patrick, we've got about a minute and a half left, but uh, but go ahead. Yeah, so real quick, great question. And I, I will say, 
you know, what's striking about that is, right, in the kind of um, mid-20th century, there was this, you see across the, the sort of Western developed world, this construction of, um, of social welfare states. You see it across um, European countries that have much lower rates of child poverty than we have today. And you see, similarly, in the United States, through, um, through, through, through programs like the, the, war on, the various programs erected through the War on Poverty, I think a core difference, though, um, is the, uh, the sort of the way the social safety net was constructed. Um, again, I, I kind of go back to this idea that, you know, we were um, largely focused on, uh, particularly in the war on poverty, on programs that breed kind of opportunity. We had a big focus on, on opportunity programs, and then we shore up the safety net through, um, through these in-kind benefits versus the social welfare state that was constructed um, you know, to, to focus on uh, broad-based kind of social insurance programs and, um, and uh, support for households in the form of, of cash so that you're not sort of allowing the level of poverty that we allow um, in the United States. So that is, I think, a core difference is this focus on provision of resources versus this idea of, of simply kind of provision of opportunity. Um, and I think that's something that, that sort of needs to be addressed. It's often, you know, it, it's hard to, to, to be for equality of opportunity if we, if we aren't um, uh, more towards um, equality of resources, particularly when, um, when children are young. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Patrick Cooney, Assistant Director of Policy Impact at Poverty Solutions. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks, Stephen. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Malik Yakini about his new Detroit food cooperative that has broken ground in Detroit. We'll talk about urban farming. We'll talk about land use in the city. We'll talk about gentrification and ownership. Uh, Malik is a really, really engaging and bright guy that I love talking to. So that should be a wonderful conversation. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.